1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet, if, if we're ever compelled to do that. Um, yeah, I joke. Uh, my name's Kevin Fulton. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I receive a lot of questions in email and through social media, and I answer all of them. I, I try to be accessible and answer questions within hours that I receive them. However, there's some questions that I get over and over again, and I think it's important to talk about these on the podcast because these may be on the minds and in the lips of many people who haven't felt compelled to write in. So, I'll answer those questions here today in the first part of the podcast. In the second part, I speak with graduate student Samantha Arroyo, and Samantha is a graduate student at the University of Florida in the Plant Cellular and Molecular Biology Program, and uh, was a student in my class. And Samantha's really sharp and will speak to us about the lawsuit against LaCroix and the allegation that their sparkling water contains cockroach insecticide components. Uh, We'll discuss the merits and the overwhelming weaknesses of that particular litigation. So the first part of this is in dealing with uh, the questions that I typically receive, and I won't mention the names of people who sent them, I'll just you know keep this anonymous, but if you did send it, thank you, and I appreciate it, and I hope this is helpful. So the first one is, when you discuss biotechnology on your podcast, you rarely say the phrase GMO. Why is that? Now that's a really good observation. Because it's a scientific podcast, I like to keep it scientific and precise. And if you look at the literature, you don't see scientists using the phrase GMO, or genetically modified organism. It's a term of derision, which has really been generated by an activist movement in a way to taint the technology or to make it appear as though it has a yuck factor. Okay, This is what we're looking at there. It's important to notice how important being precise and how important specific language is when we look at all aspects of this particular discipline. So here's what I think, and I hear people across the spectrum from activists to professionals and science communicators use phraseology that doesn't exactly fit, and to be honest, most of it never really can. But I'll give you my opinions on what is the closest and you can make up your own decisions. Many people get a little upset when I speak about language precision because they say, well, who are you to make up the decision? Well, I'm a guy who understands the technology. I understand how people respond to messaging. And so I'm very sensitive to the phrasing that works. And uh, I'll explain how I feel about the different terms. There's a few here that we can talk about and maybe ways that we can use them in our communications efforts in order to be more precise. So uh, instead of saying GMO, or genetically modified organism, um, let's refer to that as uh, genetic engineering, because it is engineering. It's the use of science and mathematics, uh, hypothesis-driven science, prediction, and fulfillment to solve a problem for human beings, and I think it really does boil down to a precise science where we're able to move a piece of DNA into another organism and have it function. I mean, this is ultimately um, what engineering is all about, right? It's no different than building a bridge. You have to have specific protocols and specific um, ways in which you do this and monitor its safety. So this is um, why I prefer the term genetic engineering. We also have to be careful with the phrase um, biotechnology. A lot of people will call uh, genetic engineering biotechnology when really genetic engineering is one little facet of biotechnology. A good example is molecular marker assisted breeding. So scientists will use molecular markers in animal and plant breeding and these are DNA tools. They're DNA markers. And even though it's not creating a genetically engineered animal or plant, you're still using biotechnology to facilitate understanding which genes are being moved and how. This works by each little gene you're interested in or each section of DNA you're interested in having a specific address or a specific um, detectable sequence or marker And with that, we can use tools of biotechnology to facilitate and speed breeding efforts. That's not genetic engineering, but it is biotechnology, and I think that's a really important distinction. Another really important one is when people say genetically engineered or genetically modified foods. Why are we eating genetically modified foods? Are foods really genetically modified? Well, the major crops that we consume ingredients from are things like sugar beets, corn, soy, um, canola, and the other one. What did I say? Corn, soy, (laughs) canola, and sugar beets. Those are the big four. And what we're really consuming there are ingredients that have been derived from sugar beets, corn, soy, and canola. So a good example would be canola oil, which comes from a genetically engineered plant the oil is not genetically engineered. The plant that produced it may have been. And so it's really important to make a distinction here. There's not much about genetically modified food or genetically engineered food. It's ingredients that came from a plant that was genetically engineered. You can see the importance of these nuances because it's much more precise now, in ingredients like corn starch or sometimes um, high fructose corn syrup, I think mostly corn starch, we can detect evidence of the DNA and um, evidence of the proteins sometimes that are associated with genetic engineering. But uh, that's not necessarily true with oils and other types of other types of products like sugar from sugar beets. You can't, uh, not very easily anyway, detect DNA or proteins. So those products are not engineered. They're not any different than ones from non-engineered plants. So this is another really important distinction to make, and it's clunky as all hell. When I talk to people and I say, well, this contains ingredients from genetically engineered plants. People think that's uh, you know kind of strange, but it's, it's scientifically precise. The other thing we have to think about is when people refer to genetic engineering as a breeding tool, and even some of our best scientific communicators use this term. Breeding, or plant breeding, animal breeding, is a very specific activity, and this is the case where you're selecting parents based upon preferred traits and attempting to sequester all of those traits in subsequent generations. It's a deliberate process of trying to coalesce all the best genetics in one place, and I think this is where I have a little bit of an uh, understanding as to where people are coming from. Because, yes, it is just moving genes in a different way. But breeding is a question of selecting parents and uh, selecting offspring in either recurrent or other schemes that allow us to uh, see genetic improvements over time. So I'm not exactly sure that calling genetic engineering breeding is the same thing. However, mutation breeding is probably really breeding. This is where you use chemicals or radiation to damage DNA to create new traits. That has always fallen under the auspices of breeding. Um, but it again is creating new traits that then can be used to um, be bred into backgrounds. So you basically create parents with problems, um, but the problems are sometimes beneficial. And then you can cross those into traditional lines through breeding, through traditional breeding. So I like to think of all of these things, whether you're using genetic engineering or whether you're using traditional breeding as genetic improvement. And all of these things fall under that particular um, umbrella. So let's go through the whole litany here. If you're talking about traditional breeding using chemicals to induce polyploidy, so extra sets of chromosomes, which is commonly done. Whether you're talking about mutation breeding, using the chemicals and radiation to create new traits, or more modern tools like genetic engineering, which really has maybe two or three different types of uh, areas underneath it. You could be talking about transgenics, where you're moving a gene or genic sequences from one species to another. Where you're talking about cisgenesis, and intragenics, where you're taking genes and gene sequences from a plant that is sexually compatible with another and just moving that single gene cassette. In other words, you're moving a piece of DNA that could have been moved by traditional breeding if you had 50 years and $50 million. Instead, you're able to do it in a couple years and for a much lower price tag. Um, That is still genetic engineering. The most precise and modern form of genetic engineering is this idea of gene editing. How do we talk about the language of gene editing? Well, We'll come to that in a minute. But gene editing um, is this very precise way of creating individual customized genetic changes, such as changing a single base of DNA in a genome. So whether you're talking about gene editing, cisgenesis, transgenics, mutation breeding, induction of polyploids, making wild wide crosses, uh, traditional breeding. All of these I like to call plant genetic improvement. Now you see the problem right there is do you always make an improvement and the answer of course is no. I would say a substantial amount of time you make something that's worse and this this is why plant breeding is such a challenge. Plant breeders may plant 5, 10, 20, 100 acres of plants, especially trees, uh, from a population from across to find that one individual that is the next uh, elite variety. It's an expensive process and one that takes a substantial amount of resources. Now, Now, I also talked about gene editing, which some people call genome editing. I like to call it gene editing because typically, at least at this point, The changes that are being made are being made in genes, and it's a way of editing a gene, just like you would edit a sentence or a word, changing a single letter to change the meaning or change the message inside that sentence. This is why I like to refer to it as gene editing. Some people like to call it new breeding techniques. The problem with calling it new breeding techniques or NBTs is that it's really not new anymore. I mean, it's three or four years old. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which means it's ancient in the eyes of scientists, um, but you can see the problem there is that a new breeding technique is only new when it's new, and actually the original new breeding techniques have now been replaced with newer breeding techniques, um, which aren't really breeding techniques, right? These are these are specific changes in DNA, and um, not selection of parents, that kind of thing, and crosses. Um, This is genetic engineering, but it's being being done with great precision. The other big term that's been used is precision breeding, which I like in a lot of ways, but this has been used to describe everything from marker-assisted breeding to cisgenics. So it has, again, a little bit of vagary that comes along with it that makes it an impractical term to use. So you can see all of the issues we have here, that New breeding techniques are not really necessarily breeding techniques, although they do create the same changes that breeding could create. (laughs) It's a mess, but this is why the precision in language is most important and where it's important for us to decide on what are the best terms to really relate our message. The next question is about golden rice. You're at 150-some episodes of your podcast, and you have yet to interview anyone about Golden Rice, which was one of the oldest examples of biotechnology engineering in traits for human benefit. Why is that? Well, um, years ago, back when I started the podcast, I reached out to the Golden Rice people because it seemed like a logical um, addition to the series. They weren't really excited to connect. Um, they actually were rather um, direct in telling me that they didn't want to be on a podcast, that they have all of their visibility um, <laughs> um, and all of their media covered, and thanks but no thanks. And I was really taken back by that because this would have been a great platform for them because of the audience which is really interested in biotechnology. Uh when I went back and revisited this, they, again, no interest at all in talking on the podcast, which is really a shame because this is a product that could have uh, really stood to create a lot of good, durable change, but I'm afraid that um, the way in which they're taking this on is, is a little bit... Um, old school, you know, a little bit 90s. They're not exploiting the media that they could be exploiting to help develop a set of messengers that were uh, primed and educated and ready to help promote their message. And I think that was uh, one of the, uh, it it really is a downfall um, of the Golden Rice story. I I wish that they would have come on. Um, At this point, I won't have them on. I don't really have any interest in them at all. Um, I'll spend my time with folks like James Dale who are using beta carotene enrichment of things like bananas. I'll spend time with the uh, soybean folks who are doing this. Um, you know, if, if Golden Rice wants to talk, we'll do it. But, um, you know, it's been 20 some years since they've had a product that hasn't yet really hit the market. And, um, I, you know, I think they would benefit from exploiting opportunities when they would be presented so there we go on that one Uh, the next one is very recent i've seen this book advertised on activist websites from a guy who used to work in biotechnology who now says that it's dangerous and that he never should have done it what is your take on this and i know a lot about this uh, more than i'll talk about here i kind of don't want to give this any oxygen but i'll give it a brief mention um, this guy's been making the rounds in the last week on all of the activist websites and uh, he's being held up as a hero. He's being held up as, a, uh, as, a, as quite a darling because he's come out and said that a couple of the companies where he used to work are evil and that the products are unsafe. And he's speaking mostly of corn and potatoes. Uh, there are some potatoes that have recently hit the market. He used to work for these companies, and the last company he worked for, uh, I know pretty well, he, um, f- for lack of a better term, fake data and published fake data, and those papers were retracted. And they, uh, the company spent years on these projects based upon his uh, findings that were, well, findings in quotes. And um, uh, they spent a lot of money and a lot of time going down a blind alley um, unfortunately and also misled many, many scientific efforts all over the nation all over the world who are adopting those same practices in their uh, own laboratories so he parted ways with that company i don't know the exact ways that that happened but my guess is is that it wasn't necessarily an amicable um, separation and uh so here's a guy who a decade ago um had papers retracted, and his reputation sullied, who um, probably for 10 years, I don't know what he's been doing, but um, now comes out with a self-published book 10 years later saying how bad these companies are. And uh, he's being held up as a hero on different websites, a lot like uh, the Hubers and Seralinis and others. Um, but is he really, I mean... If you, this is this is, shows you the capacity of the folks in this movement. Now here's a guy who uh, has now published self published the book, and I don't know that he's a hero as much as he's taking advantage of the credulous um, people who are willing to pay money for a product, um, and he's making a product that they want to buy. So I'm not so sure that he's a hero. He would have been a hero if when employed at the companies stood up and said, no, this is something I find wrong and reprehensible and here are all the problems I see with it and I'm going to put my career at great peril in order to stand up and do the right thing. That's a hero. Someone who makes up data is fired for making up data or or released for making up data. Uh, I don't know what the details were of that separation. Um, and then ten years later, writes a book that confirms the desires of an activist set. <laughs> I don't know that that's a hero. I, I kind of feel a little bit the opposite, but um, he'll enjoy a long life now of well-paid uh, uh, events where he's carted around the country and globe, uh, talking at conferences and sharing his story about how bad this technology is. We've seen it with uh, Terry Varane, Don Huber, um, Seralini, Wakefield, um, all these folks who uh, have uh, views that are not shared by the scientific consensus, yet find a home and a very welcome uh, place inside the anti-GMO movement. So good luck to you. Um, the next one, how do you feel about the substantial award that was provided to the groundskeeper because he says he was given cancer by Roundup? Um, I got this one a lot. Um, I have a lot of feelings on this one too, but first of all, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate that Mr. Johnson has the disease, um, I'm really, uh, sad that it's terminal because when you see him interviewed or see him with his family, you really do see the pain they're all going through and, and my heart goes out to him. Um, I do hope that he gets to enjoy some of the award and, um, in, in, hopefully if he finds remission, uh, lives a very long and happy and healthy life. Um, it really is heartbreaking to see anyone wrestle with this kind of disease. However, um, how, how do I feel about this whole thing? I, I don't know that I like the idea of 12 people or whatever number it is in a jury uh, deciding if science is true. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. If I have a, a panel of peer reviewed or, you know, let's say a panel of scientists who are well trained in the science um, and they're sitting down and deliberating the evidence there you can come out possibly with some sort of synthesis and even that is going to be a little bit tricky. You know, scientific consensus is a very good thing and a very sound thing and that's backed up by by dozens or hundreds or thousands of pieces of evidence. Should a jury be able to overturn the scientific consensus? A jury of 12 lay people? Uh, that's where it really starts to become problematic for me because juries... Uh, by their nature uh, can be manipulated by attorneys and attorneys you know who can really create this uh, victims and villains kind of uh, scenario can tell a story that's extremely compelling and uh, and can really uh, sway a jury one way or the other and especially if a jury lacks strong personalities that are willing to um, put their own personal feelings on the line and really talk about, here's how this needs to happen. Um, juries can can be kind of malleable, and we've seen that throughout history. It, it's not a bad system, but it's the best we got, and it does make mistakes. All I can say is that what this jury concluded, and again, I wasn't in the room, I didn't see the data, I didn't see the evidence, and maybe the jury's right. Maybe based on the evidence, they saw it, that there is some sort of concrete evidence that indicates uh, a direct cause causal relationship between mr johnson's disease and the uh, herbicide however that is completely contrary to what we know from the scientific consensus and from the literature on this disease and the literature on the uh, herbicide there's no uh, plausible mechanism by which the herbicide or its other ingredients, whether it's glyphosate or the other ingredients used to help glyphosate penetrate into plants, can um, induce uh, uh, changes which are reminiscent of, of uh, carcinogenic behavior. Um, there's a couple reports from Cells in a Dish that you can do this, but others that say no, you can't. So that's a little bit hard to say. And even if it did show it well, it's, it sells in a dish. Um, the studies have been inconsistent within animal studies. And certainly when you look at epidemiological data from uh, you know 40 years of use now, you don't see any trends associated with occupational exposure and this particular chemical. So um, nobody will ever know if the herbicide gave Mr. Johnson cancer, it's one person, um, it's uh, one set of circumstances. Nobody will ever know. But what we do know is that this is a relatively safe chemical, at least at this point, and until more data come out that indicate. And I'm not talking about um, going through emails within a company. You know that can be bent in different ways. And people say things that are preliminary. You know, it, it's really hard to go from from those. If the data do show some sort of evidence of carcinogenic potential, then by all means, it should be followed up on and taken very seriously. But to this point, um, we don't see those trends and don't see those data. So, um, you know, again, my heart's out to Mr. Johnson and his family. And uh, this will be a very interesting story going forward. Now uh, The last question is, you know, what's happening uh, in your laboratory these days, um, and as people know, I, I used to be the chair of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida. And earlier this year, um had to uh, step out of that role. Um, uh, yeah, let's leave it at that. Uh, episode 100 talked a lot about what was happening in the laboratory. Um, I can talk a little bit about that, that right now I'm actively... Out of the chair role and back in a research role, and working very hard, particularly in the area of light treatments and controlled environment agriculture. So, how do we grow plants in a box? And my emphasis has been on now genetics that fit that environment. How do we come up with new plant types? That perform very well in those contexts and that's just done by a lot of screening and a lot of evaluation and uh, some plant breeding so that's coming uh, in the near future and it's been nice to be in the lab i've got a great group work again as always with the best scientists in the world uh, outstanding postdoc two great grad students and a few other undergrads it's a small program because i haven't been writing grants i've been working towards a departmental mission and uh, kind of sacrificed my own um, program to do that. Um, now I'm back uh, in the laboratory full-time, and, uh, and hopefully things will change there. So, so if you win the lottery and like to support a good cause, um, <laughs> send your checks as unrestricted gifts to the University of Florida with my name on it, and um, uh, fund some good science and, then, and outreach. We do a lot of that too. Um, the last question I'll deal with here is, uh, I hear that you are no longer participating in the GMO corn project. What happened there and why are you currently not involved? Um, it's a long story and I, it's been talked about elsewhere, but briefly, you know, three years ago, I embarked on this project with um, the folks over at BioFortified. Uh, we raised a lot of money. We uh, spent a lot of time getting the project together and designing the experiments um, uh, it went nowhere after the kits went out and it was really disappointing to me and I pushed them very hard. Let's do this. Let's do this. Um, two years later, I took on some outside work outside of the university as a professional witness-like project, um, just analyzing some data for uh, for a law firm. The, the folks who I was working with on this project <clears throat> for very personal reasons, uh, went after me and uh, used the Freedom of Information Act to obtain all of my emails uh, in internal documents and um, kind of f- pieced together what this uh, private mediation arbitration work I was doing was. And it, that was to retain, be, be maintained as confidential. And I couldn't talk about it. I wasn't allowed to talk about what it was or who was involved. It was a private mediation. It was um, you know, very uh, important to keep it private. Yet this, these folks um, said that this was a conflict of interest that would uh, affect my ability to operate in science. And they broke all my confidentiality, uh, threw me under the bus as hard as they could, and told me I was no longer on the project. So the problem with that is you can't just take somebody off of a project where they have substantial investment. Um, In my lab, if you're uh, someone who contributes to a project in even a cursory way, you become an author on the paper because that's how it should work. You contributed, You put in your intellectual um, ability, you put in your thoughts and ideas that shape the project, and you should receive authorship credit. Um, These folks say that I no longer am an author. And I'll let that go. I have plenty of papers. Um, It's not a big deal to have my name on a paper that says squirrels eat corn. Um, These folks don't publish. They don't have publication experience. They don't understand publication ethics. We'll just let them do it, and I don't really care. And I'm not going to say anything. I don't really care. Um, It's not important to me. Uh, I have my own work to do that is much more has much more impact and much more interest and much more value to many more stakeholders. so you know i'm I'm focusing on that. However, if um, an editor or somebody you know this is kind of a widely understood thing here uh someone feels that it was inappropriate and they uh look into it and they ask me you know my opinions, I'll be certainly glad to tell them that it's it's something that I feel was uh an unethical move. So we'll leave it at that. So that's it for the question and answer period of the podcast. We'll come back on the other side today with Samantha Arroyo in a discussion of the LaCroix uh, insecticide in the sparkling water controversy, chemophobia that would make the food babe very proud. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. I'm Kevin Fulta. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back in just a minute.
0: Hello, talking biotech listeners. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you've never heard of No Ideas Media, we make science and agriculture communications videos to be shared on social media sites like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. The videos are not bad, if I do say so myself, and they are pretty effective at communicating complex science and ag topics to the general public. But in order for them to reach the public, I need people like you to share the videos widely. I also need people like you to support No Ideas Media through Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding site, kind of like Kickstarter, but it works on smaller podcast. monthly we'll donations. So if you'd like to help No Ideas Media continue the, the work that we're doing, please go to patreon.com backslash spring no water, ideas Media water, and consider being water. a patron. Thanks very much. Seltzer, water, I whatever
1: they call it. So I'm sitting here with Samantha Arroyo. And Samantha is a graduate student here in the program uh, at the University of Florida. Uh, Samantha, welcome to the podcast.
2: <laughs> Thank you for having me.
1: <laughs> having you here again. Yes. Yesterday we got hurricaned out. But uh, the main idea here is to talk about what is actually happening in this lawsuit. Do you mind uh, covering exactly what the story is against LaCroix?
2: Yeah, so it's coming out of Chicago. A law firm there called Beaumont Costales Law Firm um, is filing a class action lawsuit against LaCroix's parent company about the claims that LaCroix has made on their cans um, and on their website saying that it's always natural, 100% natural ingredients. And the law firm is filing this because they have claims of uh, certain chemicals, namely limonene, linoleal propionate, and linalool as being synthetic and included in the LaCroix beverages.
1: And uh, those compounds are naturally found where?
2: So, in quite a few many plants. Uh, <laughs> they definitely occur naturally in basil, which is a species that I'm working with, but it's found across citruses, mints even some woody plants like rosewood, green tea, ginger, lots of things.
1: Like the flavors that might be found in LaCroix sparkling water.
2: <laughs> Pretty much.
1: <laughs> well, this is interesting because uh, I know that you know we study um, linalool quite a bit. That's a really important one. I always say it sounds like a tool in the Three Stooges is a surgical tool, (laughs) linalool. Um, So linalool uh, is one that we study all the time because it's a really important uh, flavor in the domesticated strawberry, or actually in the octoploid strawberry, the commercial strawberry, Um, not so much in the wild ones. And it was, is believed that that's part of the domestication process of strawberry was the selection of linalool, pretty cool. But where do we find some of these other ones specifically?
2: Uh, so, limonene is responsible for that citrusy kind of smell, and it's found in naturally in limes and lemons and even basil, but it's definitely found in things like cleaning products and candles that smell limonene, yeah. like, just like the name suggests, and linalool is also found in those natural plants like the strawberry and the basil that I'm working with, but but uh, both of these are pretty much very common natural flavorings.
1: Yeah, and linalool is, so people would recognize, is the smell of uh, Lucky Charms. I mean, if you smelled linalool out of the jar, if I opened the jar of reagent, you'd go, oh, wow. Smells not Lucky Charms, Fruit Loops. Fruit
2: Loops, any sugary yeah. <laughs> cereal it seems like these days. <laughs>
1: but it's the, but it kind of imparts this weird fruity floral essence. That's particularly um, something in fruity pebbles and Fruit Loops. I think is the like the dominant smell that you can pick up. And so uh, when you look at this in terms of a lawsuit, how do you feel about that? In terms of you know how have people been injured, but because of a synthetic well, if there is a synthetic, the company says that these are natural compounds um, that are sourced from natural sources, meaning some company isolates uh, linalool and the other ones, um, that someone's claiming that there's some sort of injury from getting the synthetic version over a natural version. And how much injury do you think is possible because of that?
2: Well, I think it's pretty bogus claims. Definitely no physical injury coming from any of this. Uh, It seems like maybe they're playing on, you know, the consumers being duped into something that's synthetic. But I don't even I wouldn't even go so far to say that that's the case
1: yeah they would have to say that they were tricked into paying more for natural right <laughs> yeah. I mean that's one possible way that if I was there if I was the attorney in that class action lawsuit that's kind of the only leg you have to stand on is some sort of monetary da- damage that would be uh, due to being sold something natural at a higher cost but I don't think that Lacroix is that much cheaper or more expensive than anything else
2: I would say it's pretty comparable to sodas and- yeah. Whatever's out there.
1: I drink the Walmart water. It's all (laughs) like the Walmart sparkling water is a hundred percent (laughs) unnatural And they stand on that very proudly. It tastes like synthetic craziness So overall then so tell us a little bit about your research. What exactly are you studying?
2: So right now uh, my thesis is centered on creating molecular tools for the applied basal breeding program here at UF and A very desirable trait of basil is its flavor and its aroma. So right now I'm trying to um, create a method using our analytical machines to really quantify what good basil flavor means broken down into these different compounds. Um, and then see if we can implement that as a breeding tool for our inbred lines. Mm
1: -hmm. So, how much of it is, so what are the dominant ones in basil? I I think eugenol is the big one.
2: Yes, eugenol, uh, eucalyptol, linalool is actually shown in very high amounts in our basil, although it doesn't really smell fruity. Yeah. Um, But, so I work with that. And then limonene is one that's showing up in our inbred lines that we want to kick out pretty much.
1: Okay, so if this class action lawsuit falls through with LaCroix, this uh, law firm can sue basil. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's what it seems like if the logic follows.
1: (laughs) Yeah, going after big big basil. (laughs) So Samantha, tell me in a nutshell, should people be concerned about these flavor compounds?
2: Definitely not. These are things that you've probably already eaten time and time again. They're there in trace amounts, and they're the same compounds that you'd have on your in your basil, in your pasta sauce, and in your Fruit Loops.
1: Well, you said a trace amounts. So, if you were to consume a lot of it, does that become problematic?
2: Yeah. Well, for instance, you know, if you really want to kill someone by using linoleol or limonene, <laughs> you'd need about. 300 to 400 grams of limonene and about 200 grams of linalool.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, so not trivial. A, a decent amount of a compound that we perceive in trace amounts. A few molecules. We're very sensitive to these with, through olfaction, through, just through our sense of smell. And and so we're really sensitive to them. So to, 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 you'd have to eat something like... Uh, seven million bowls of Fruity Pebbles.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you'd have to really have your own death wish and fulfill that.
1: (laughs) You'd be overcome by sugar long before the linalool would get you. The other big question is, what does natural mean according to FDA standards? And do these compounds really, even if they were artificially synthesized, do they conform to those natural um, requirements?
2: Yeah, so natural is definitely one of the most commonly found labels on our food, but I think that we have a gross misunderstanding of what it means at the consumer level. The FDA considers the term natural to mean that nothing artificial or synthetic has been included in or added to the food that would not normally be expected to be in that food, but this statement doesn't regard any food production, processing, or manufacturing methods so it simply is, is the ingredient naturally occurring or not?
1: Gosh, that's weird. Because if if I gave you um, a taste of synthetic linalool or naturally occurring linalool, could you tell them apart?
2: Absolutely not.
1: And if I gave you a sample in a test tube and you went back to your million-dollar machine in your lab and pumped it through, could you tell the synthetic one from the naturally occurring one?
2: Not at all.
1: And you know, would you use the synthetic one even calibrate a machine so that it would identify the synthetic one yes. or the natural one right <laughs> yes
2: that's the the common method
1: yeah so so it's kind of uh it's kind of a weird hocus pocus and unfortunately this kind of um lawsuit has some negative sides to it like what do you think are the negative sides of this when you look at the uh, public perception and acceptance of science
2: it seems to put a lot of distrust on companies and science and chemicals out there. Um, that when you break it down into logic, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense.
1: Yeah, they, when they say that your your drink contains cockroach insecticide, which is what it said, because linalool is a is a is an an ingredient that works as an insect repellent which may be why it's in fruits and flowers and leaves because they may be compounds that actually do a good job at attracting, say a pollinator or a seed disperser, but maybe have effects at repelling an insect. So that, that's kind of cool. But yet here it's playing into chemophobia uh, to scare people away from good healthy food and in this case, a, a rather neutral beverage.
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Sometimes people forget that just because a food might have a non-dietary use doesn't mean that it's not safe or, you know, we're all still eating chocolate and grapes, even though those things could kill dogs. Right. You know, it's something along those lines of logic.
1: It's very true. And it's also the same as like most insecticides contain water. Yet water is not an insecticide, right? So you're, you're you're picking at the ingredients in the final concoction to vilify the uh, product itself or the compound itself.
2: Yeah, I'm almost surprised that the Beaumont Castellas law firm didn't claim the water was unnatural <laughs> in this case too.
1: That's right. It kills people every day, in one way or another. You know, bathtub drownings are all time high. Well, Samantha, if people wanted to learn more about what you do or follow you on social media, um, where would they find your, uh, where would they find you?
2: Yeah, so I'm currently on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at SR underscore Arroyo, A-R-R-O-Y-O. And then um, from there, you can follow me on my blog about science communication and these topics is currently a longer article where I go a little bit more in depth about the LaCroix lawsuit and the science behind the claims. And that's at (laughs) herbygirlscience.weebly.com.
1: So Herby Girl, could you spell that?
2: H-E-R-B-Y-G-I-R-L.
1: Okay, so just like it sounds. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much, Samantha. Come back and talk about something else sometime, and we'll definitely keep an eyeball on your blog. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And once again, we're smack out of time. Uh, may all the chemistry in your world be right, to borrow a term from Joe Schwartz, um, the great Joe Schwartz. Um, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review, tell a friend, um, maybe spray paint this on an underpass at uh, talkingbiotechpodcast.com as we uh, encourage you to exploit the older, more primitive forms of media in the days of modern digital technology. Um, a large number of uh, vandals vagrants and others who gang members things like that uh, don't necessarily look to the internet first and that underpass that you deface may help expose them to the modern concepts in biotechnology and spark their interest in higher uh, ventures (laughs) at least i think they probably are (laughs) thank you very much for listening again we'll talk to you again next week
2: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech.